Renewable natural gas, the energy source that nobody's talking about. I'm Jim Park, and this is HGT Talks Trucking, Season 4, Episode Number 2. Sometimes it seems we're stepping over a dollar to pick up a dime in our quest for lower vehicle emissions. We're all in on battery electric trucks, despite some of the upstream consequences of dirty grids, battery production, and of course the infrastructure required to make it all work. Hydrogen fuel cells seem promising, but the dirty grid problem remains in some areas, and we still have no idea what the life cycle costs of those trucks is going to be. Renewable natural gas, or RNG, is different. We already have the trucks and the engines to burn the stuff. The fueling infrastructure is already in place in many areas, and it's all relatively cheap. On top of that, many sources of renewable natural gas are actually emissions negative. That means the process of collecting and putting the gas to use driving trucks removes more greenhouse gas from the environment than it produces. Joining me on HDT Talks Trucking on this episode to explain the benefits and drawbacks of RNG is Hugh Dunnell. He's the market segment leader for Cummins Westport's North American OEM truck business. We'll be back with Hugh right after this. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a unique networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. We're talking today on HDT Talks Trucking with Hugh Dunnell. He's the uh, Business Growth and Development Manager at Cummins Westport. We're going to sort out the difference today, Hugh, uh, between uh, renewable natural gas and fossil fuel natural gas. Uh, Everybody thought natural gas was dead until, you know, a couple of years ago when renewable natural gas came on the scene. So can you enlighten us and sort of explain the difference between what we've called natural gas all these years and this uh, new and emerging stuff called renewable natural gas? Yeah, uh, thank you, Jim, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. Yeah, the difference between uh, fossil natural gas and uh, renewable natural gas really is the source. And and why that is important is uh, it goes to the emission level. So fossil natural gas, without getting into the deep, deep details on this, basically it is harvested from uh, the wellhead. And it generally is a byproduct of uh, oil wells. And uh, rather than flaring it off, um, this uh, fossil natural gas has been piped in and used uh, throughout the grid in North America and other places around the world. Renewable natural gas is a is, a, is more of a methane that has got the same properties as um, um, natural gas, uh, as regular natural gas, but it doesn't have some of the uh, contaminants that you get out of the fossil natural gas. So renewable natural gas has a carbon intensity uh, scale that uh, puts it at the, the cleanest fuel available for our engines. So uh, when we look at uh, the prime place to uh, gather natural gas or renewable natural gas, it would be like in a landfill. But you can get it in other places, uh, equally as important in dairy farms, um, uh, using anaerobic digesters to process um, the manure. Um, and, uh, and, and what, you know, initially everybody thought this was sort of kind of a small thing. But there are about 2,000 uh, landfills in the United States that have the potential to draw um, methane from or renewable natural gas. Just south of us, here we're just south of Indianapolis, but just south of here in Louisville, Kentucky, a refuse company has plumbed the landfill down there. It is uh, a landfill that pulls um, um, 
uh, garbage from about 600,000 uh, people in the city, greater, greater St. Louis area. I'm sorry, Louisville area. And um, each day they um, draw 18,000 diesel gallon equivalent of renewable nitric gas off that uh, landfill. 18,000 gallons uh, diesel gallon equivalent. That's 6.5 million gallons a year. And the contractor or the refuse company in this case uses that natural gas in their collection vehicles. And what they don't consume in their refuse trucks, they sell back to the grid. So it's been a win-win situation. And this methane would have normally been uh, emitted or vented to the atmosphere, or it could have been flared. So uh, it is repurposing what uh, was a fugitive gas at that uh, for many years and allowed to uh, emit to the atmosphere and made it uh, 40 times more uh, toxic uh, going to the atmosphere than actually burning it in our engines. So it's a win-win situation here. And uh, these models are beginning to get a great deal of uh, momentum behind them around the country. Today, uh, renewable natural gas is the prime fuel being sold to um, uh, fleets who are operating on a natural gas engine. So our natural gas engines uh, have an emission level of point, uh, 0.02 gram NOx emission levels. You put in a landfill renewable natural gas into that engine and we are net sub-zero emissions. And let me just say that again, we're net sub-zero emissions. So the positioning for a lot of alternative technology um, vehicles has been zero emissions claimed by the um, electric vehicle or battery electric vehicle group. And, um, and that really depends on the source of electricity. The upshot of it is right now, renewable natural gas in our natural gas engines is a net sub-zero. And uh, we think that's pretty good. How do you how do you get to net sub zero? Um, if zero is zero, how do you get below that? Yeah, good question, Jim. So, because the methane or the renewable natural gas coming up the landfills would normally be emitted to the atmosphere, uh, you're consuming that natural gas, and uh, you get a double benefit for that. Um, and that is uh, how the uh, government measures this. So, um, you have taken what was a um, contaminant and processed it and consumed it, and it avoids the uh, contamination in the atmosphere. So you're using something that was a contaminant uh, and uh, moving a uh, vehicle down the road, so you get a credit for that. How long does it take, then, for uh, a figurative truckload of trash dumped into the landfill or the uh, digester uh, to actually turn into usable natural gas? Is it a like ages-long process or weeks, days? That's a great question. I don't know the answer how long it takes, but I can tell you the landfill um, down in Louisville is, uh, I think, two years old, and they're drawing off 18,000 gallons a day. Wow. Well, that's a pretty quick turnaround then. I would say so, yes. There are, um, there's a great deal of, uh, of uh, interest and uh, a lot of investment uh, community has been moving and uh, looking at this as well, as you might expect, but... Uh, and municipalities are looking at doing this as well. So uh, a lot of municipalities over the years have just capped these landfills, put vent pipes on them, 
and uh, they were not regulated and they uh, revisiting some of those old camp of landfills and uh, you can plummet um, and start drying the methane off. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, natural resource, so to speak. <laughs> Very, yeah. So a two-year-old landfill is producing 18,000 gallons a day. Presumably that's going to continue as you dump new garbage in. Uh, if you've used up the gas that's already in, so you keep generating feedstock just by producing waste, which I don't think we're going to stop doing anytime soon. Yeah. In fact, um, the project uh, managers told me that uh, they are uh, permitted, I think, through 2055 on this landfill. So we okay. have to renew the permits on it. So they fully expect to pull that, at least that off every day from now uh, to 2055. And as I said, that's about six and a half million gallons a year. Now, is that a specialized waste stream or does the truck literally back up and dump everything, couches, old TVs, uh, uh, undigested food or uh, food scraps? What goes in there? Yeah, good question. So they're the normal garbage. If you go to a, sort of a landfill today, it's not like it was uh, 20, 30 years ago. We just dumped everything. So you have road, residential, commercial uh, refuse, um, and uh, then you have uh, um, a sorting of um you know, metal or wood products or furniture and those sort of things. Those go to a different place entirely. Those are generally um, ground up or repurposed or sold as scrap or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, this would normally be what would consume residential and um, uh, restaurant sort of um, uh, refuse. So organic waste, basically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned. Um, Manure lagoons, uh, water treatment plants, I think, as a possible source for this. Have they been tapped yet, really, in a big way? Yes, actually, there are several around the country and more coming on all the time. We have a, um, a uh, dairy farm just north of us in uh, Indiana, uh, Farrow Farms, and uh, you look it up on the internet, but um, they have 30,000 head of cattle, and um, they have a, a fleet of about... Um, about 50 or 55 ISX-12G or N engines, not natural gas engines, they are uh, tankers. And uh, that entire fleet is powered by uh, the um, uh, manure methane they get uh, off their anaerobic digester. What they don't consume um, with their truck, with their fleet, they actually uh, run generators and sell electricity uh, what they don't use on their own dairy farm, they sell the um, surplus electricity back to the grid. <laughs> wow. So they're entirely off the grid. Entirely off the grid, yeah. Nobody likes talking about dollars and cents in discussions like this, but was that setup expensive for them? I mean, how long will it take for them to recover the cost it took them to set it up? Maybe you're getting free fuel for your truck, so... You know, a big savings there, but it was an expensive process to put together. Um, I don't know the actual numbers that they they invested. I know that there was a significant amount of uh, Department of Energy funding and this grants uh, to testing. And same is true with the, the landfill down in Louisville. Uh, so there's been government money to uh, proof of concept money um, to help people, and I think that um, I think the project in and uh, Louisville was, um, I think it was somewhere in the range of around $5 million to do the entire thing. Uh, and a substantial amount of that was, again, um, a, a grant from the government to, uh, to do the proof of concept. 
And this company now has used that as their proof of concept and started looking at other landfills around the country, as many as six or eight at this point that in some that are in some step of their process to to plumb and pull nitric gas off those landfills as well. So it, uh, the proof of concept worked well for the uh, this company and uh, this director's company and their plans are to continue to do this around the country. When you're discussing subsidies and incentives, uh, governments putting a lot of money into various governments are putting a lot of money into funding uh, electric trucks, battery powered trucks, uh, all sorts of ways of reducing our, our carbon emissions. You have a state like Indiana, uh, I think Louisville as well, fairly high coal consuming states. So when you talk about generating electricity for electric trucks in a state like that, your carbon emissions are going to be higher than they would be in the Northwest where there's a lot of hydroelectric power. So long you come with this <laughs> landfill biodigester plan where there, I mean, the methane that you're that you're tapping and using would normally have been a waste product. What what I don't understand is that renewable natural gas seems to be about the best kept secret in uh, in emissions in the in the war against emissions here. Why aren't governments all over this? This just seems to work. Uh, you know, that's a great question and one to, that we start every day thinking about. Um, uh, how can we uh, ensure that people have a good understanding? But if, if you look at the you know, the overall experience around um, uh, electric vehicles, for example, uh, the first electric vehicle, I think, uh, was um, um, developed uh, uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, it's not new technology per se. There are new components, better components, and then battery technology obviously is improving an awful lot. And this has gone for nearly 100 years or more, 120, 30 years, whatever it is. We just actually started, you know, Cummins is building natural gas engines since uh, it's actually built some in the 60s, but uh, more commercially available in the 80s. And then the, then we started uh, doing this a little bit more in the uh, early uh, 2000s. So in 2018, though, uh, is when we were able to uh, break the code, so to speak, and uh, take our natural gas engines to a, uh, a very low emission level. And um, uh, so that today is 90% cleaner than a diesel engine. So that's a pretty important piece. And then again, mating our engine up with a renewable natural gas is generally a newer, uh, newer thing uh, that has occurred. And in my discussions with um, several government people, um, their, their impression has been that there's just not enough renewable natural gas to be meaningful. Um, and I would, you know, I would say that's, um, that may have been true six or eight years ago, in the last two or three years, you know, with this level of awareness and demand, we're starting to see more and more get into the marketplace. And large fleets in this country who are operating a natural gas engine by a contract for renewable natural gas. That natural gas that they're buying is basically they're buying space and the grid and um, and so they don't you know when they're buying gas off the grid, um, when they make that uh, commitment, what they're doing is displacing fossil natural gas on the grid and replacing it with renewable natural gas. So they don't necessarily have to run that um, that that renewable natural gas in the engine, but the fact that they're buying renewable nat natural gas that's being injected into the grid 
improves the quality of the uh, fuel in the grid. Therefore, they get a credit for running, uh, operating or burning uh, renewable natural gas. In mm-hmm. the you, know, you know, why is this so, um, sort of uh, not as um, popular, perhaps, as other technologies? Uh, part of it is, as I said, we just came out with this in the last couple of years. And, uh, and, and we've been pushing this out to those fleets who've been operating our product in the past, but who have environmental sustainability. So the key piece to this is if you have an environmental sustainability program or a, um, and which is very, um, important now in large corporations. In fact, Wall Street measures how well you are managing your environmental sustainability programs. This is a attribute to those programs. So if you are a large um, global freight company, you have uh, a pretty substantial um, carbon footprint or greenhouse gas uh, liability. Mm-hmm. This offsets those liabilities or reduces them. And, and so from a practical standpoint, the people that are already doing it are really doing it in a bigger way. Um, and when we look at uh, government people, they're thinking, um, there was over $4 billion that was um, made available part of the VW mitigation um, uh, funding uh, that became available. And those funds were targeted towards developing all kinds of new different technologies, including battery electric vehicles, including natural gas engines and hydrogen fuel cells. All of those different technologies have been out there. You know, as, as I think probably one of the bigger challenges today, Jim, is as we look, as you mentioned before, if you're if you're creating electricity with coal, and uh, you have got to factor in the air emissions from that source of generating that electricity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the phrase uh, is pretty common uh, today: is electricity is not fuel. Electricity is a product of fuel consumed that is transported through a system and put into an electric uh, battery or motor. And uh, the liability uh, occurs in the manner in which you create that electricity. So there's clean electricity. Clean electricity would be from solar panels or windmills. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the coal-generated uh, electricity uh, clearly is not. And, and, and some in the industry refer to it as dirty electricity, which doesn't net you as clean a, um, um, a product as uh, renewable natural gas does with our engines. Yeah. I guess even hydroelectric sources would be, you know, quote unquote clean, but renewable natural gas is sub-clean, super clean, you know, from an emissions point of view, right? It's actually better than the cleanest source of electricity. It is. As as we talked about before, this is methane that would normally be uh, emitting to the atmosphere, Yeah, which is 40 times more potent. So- you're not only consuming a, a, a natural resource, but you're consuming natural resource that was detrimental to the uh, environment. I'm Jim Park, and you're listening to HDT Talks Trucking. Our guest on this episode is Hugh Donnell. He's the business growth and development manager at Cummins Westport. When we return after the break, Hugh and I will be discussing the various applications where RNG is just a no-brainer, And we'll look at the business case for converting trucks from diesel to RNG. So stay with us. (music) 
HGT Talks Trucking is brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a relationship-building event hosted by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. HGTX is loaded with topical discussions and learning opportunities with some of the most innovative people in the business. HGTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Managers of Class 7 and 8 fleets apply now to be our guest at HGTX 2021. To learn more and to apply, go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com. Okay, let's let's talk about some of the applications for renewable natural gas and a little bit about the trucks and the engines themselves. Where is this, where are the most obvious use cases for this uh, from a trucking perspective? Yeah, good question. So, so we make three engines. We have a 12 liter known as the IS612N um, and means natural gas. Uh, and then we have the L9N, which is a nine liter engine. And then we have a 6.7 liter engine, um, the ION, and the 6.7 liter engine is just really coming into in the marketplace right now. The nine liter has been uh, available um, off and on since the, probably around 20, 2008, somewhere around there. So um, in various configurations prior to that, and we've seen it predominantly used in bus transit applications on the nine liter. Uh, bus transit, and then it moved into the refuse market. So a lot of the refuse trucks are running the nine liter uh, engine, and um, that is um, the primary uh, application for the nine liter. The six seven is coming out right now, is targeted towards uh, class uh, seven uh, and six, uh, up to 33,000 GBWs. So if you look at it, the 6.7 is um, up to 33,000 GVW. The uh, the 9 liter is up to 66,000 GVW. And then the uh, 12 liter is uh, good up to, uh, we recommend up to a ceiling of 80,000 pounds GVW. The 12 liter uh, we launched in 2013, early 2013, sort of a slow launch on that one, but the predominant um, place for the 12 liter has been um, LTL applications, bourbon return to base operations. While you can buy that engine in a sleeper cap configuration, some have done that uh, and are continuing to do that. Uh, but it generally, I would say, is uh, as a 12 liter is uh, competing generally uh, with the 15 liter engines that are out there. Uh, so we don't really see a big calling for that at this point, although. I would say that uh, there's one very large, uh, one large fleet that is growing, has plans to uh, put about a thousand uh, sleeper cabs into uh, in operations in the next uh, 12 to 14 months. And, and largely because they have a commitment to reduce their uh, greenhouse gas liabilities. They want to be carbon neutral uh, within 10 years or so. The only way they can do that is with a um, renewable natural gas engines. They have, uh, they're ordering packaged cars and electric. Uh, so uh, what I guess the answer I would give you here is, is a shorter answer would be um, there are a variety of different technologies, all of which Cummins actually um, has available um, that are going to solve these problems. And some technologies are going to be better in some applications than others. and um, Right now, I think we're still getting our sea legs, so to speak, uh, with the natural gas at uh, these low emission levels. And uh, the primary motivator, uh, I would tell you today, for buying any one of our natural gas products is the greenhouse gas um, 
uh, angle and uh, the environmental sustainability programs of these companies who are um, trying to mitigate those or keep those uh, numbers down or, or as low as they can. Uh, that's what's driving the uh, interest around our products. From a fueling perspective, the infrastructure, uh, you're running a fleet close to home on the regional or urban uh, application. You're going to be coming back to the yard every night. You can fuel behind the fence, as they say, uh, take advantage of the slow fuel process. Also, quick fuel for, I guess, what, 80% of a top up in a real hurry. Yeah. Are you trying to build out uh, a natural gas fueling infrastructure around the country or are most of these fleets doing it internally? Um, I would say that's a good question. So uh, I would say upwards of 90% of all of the fleets that are operating uh, natural gas engines uh, are behind the fence. Okay. Um, because um, the refueling uh, capability around the country, I would just name Loves, for example. Anytime Loves uh, is building a new site out or is um, uh, going to be, um, uh, and I think Flying J as well, they, uh, in both of them, are putting in uh, refueling sites for natural gas. Um, but I would also say that uh, because the 98% of all of the engines, 12 liters, sold go in day cabs, uh, I just don't feel that there's going to be an awful lot of um, opportunities for them to sell product until um, uh, more sleeper trucks are sold. And as you know, on the long haul applications, the truckload carrier is going to get, you know, the front haul is pretty much um, decided. Uh, it's the back haul that they're always trying to pick up a load on. And uh, you're out of route sometimes. And, and that's what creates a little bit of a fuel anxiety, if you will, for mm -hmm. that application. But for the applications that it's in use today, uh, the vast majority of them are behind the fence, privately owned. And uh, they have two options. They can do a fast fill. And as you said, you get about 80, 85% of um, a fill rate. Um, in the same time, it would take to refuel a diesel truck. Uh, whereas you can do a slow fill. Uh, and that's what a lot of refuse companies get. And they get upwards of 95% fill, but it's a slow fill overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, so the difference is on a fast fill, um, the speed in which the velocity in which you're putting the fuel through um, uh, the lines creates friction, as you would expect. It heats that up and it swells. So that's uh, the consequence of the fast fill as you'll lose some ability to top off the entire tank. But as long as you get 4,000 pounds PSI, um, uh, and you're good to go. And so average size fuel tanks on a Class 8 truck, I think the average for the overall group, it's about 150 diesel gallon equivalent, somewhere in that range. And uh, for most operators, that's uh, more than enough to uh, cover uh, several days of, of operation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk about the business case then. As a fleet, uh, thinking about buying some equipment like this, obviously, if you're in the refuse market, you understand this fundamentally. But if you're running an urban P&D operation, ready-mix trucks, um, any number of other sort of return-to-base uh, applications, how does the ROI work when you're getting your fuel at almost nothing? Yeah. Uh, that's another great question. Thanks for asking that. So um, just by the, the very nature of the um, uh, business these folks are in, um, your LTL carriers, some of your large LTL, LTL carriers, uh, whether it's gas or diesel, their standard uh, um, uh, years of service for any one of their assets is typically 10 to 12 years. And so there's really not a secondary market for these. And then ReadyMix is another good example, but uh, ReadyMix, 
refuse, those assets are in service um, generally 10 to 12, 14 years. And uh, they do a midlife generally on a lot of those assets if they have to. Uh, and then when the costs started coming up, uh, sort of irretrievable costs, and that's when they'll dispose of those assets. So mm-hmm. natural gas, typically, if you're looking at your ROI, it's not the typical four years. So in a class eight application, um, and if you're long haul, um, typically they have a trade cycle of four or five years. And, and the reason for that is, is uh, they uh, recruit and retain drivers with new equipment. And those, that equipment generally will operate for 100, 110, 120,000 miles a year. So by the time they've got their five years in, they've got six, 700,000 miles on those assets. And uh, they're probably time to get to the secondary market. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the um, day cab applications, generally you're going to uh, uh, average uh, probably 70, 80,000 miles a year. Uh, Brady Mix is going to be a lot less than that. Um, but uh, so your your model generally is 10 years, it's not four or five years. And it makes perfect sense. Um, and one of the sort of the key features to or benefits to our engine is and our technology is. Our exhaust treatment system is maintenance-free. It's just like an automobile or pickup truck. Unlike diesel products, we require fluids and sensors and cleaning filters and all those other things. We don't have any of that with our engines. To me, and and the more I learn about renewable natural gas, uh, the only mystery that remains is why everybody isn't doing it. (laughs) I I don't see any downside to it. Uh, We're going to wind up here in a couple of minutes. The... uh, Zoom meeting is going to run off on the meter here. So I'll, I'll hand the last couple of minutes of this back to you. Um, any point you want to make, anything you want to say, um, the floor is all yours. I think the key piece that I would stress to anybody considering buying natural gas is, um, you know, figure out why you're doing it. Um, uh, initially, people were buying uh, natural gas engines because the fuel cost spread was very significant. In fact, it was... Um, you know, uh, six or eight years ago, the spread was over two dollars, two fifty a gallon. So, the primary reason why people um, were buying natural gas back then was again the two cost spread, and uh, and the cost of operation was significantly less um, because of the exhaust treatment systems. Um, so, from that respect, you know, I, I think uh, there were a lot of lessons learned early on, and and one of the things that I would remind people that are looking at doing this. You know, talk with, with folks who know what, what they're doing around this technology. It's not that complicated, but it is unique sometimes. And um, as the engine continues to develop and, and uh, improve the different iterations, uh, we get smart about what we're doing. But also the oil providers, you know, initially we had 500-hour oil drain intervals on our engines. Now we're at 1,000 on the 9 liter, 1,500 hours. So we continue to improve. Uh, as different um, um, different uh, products become more targeted towards improving, um, um, say, intervals, maintenance intervals on the engine. Spark plugs is another piece. We had a thousand hours on the spark plugs. We're always looking for spark plug providers who can uh, give us more durable spark plugs to last longer. Um, and we're hopeful that uh, you know sooner or later that, uh, someone's going to land at fifteen hundred hours. And uh, we'll, all of our engines, hopefully one day, will be at 1,500 hours uh, as well. So matching up the intervals, making sure that's all right. But missing intervals using the wrong oil is, is not a good thing. Uh, there are consequences for it. 
Uh, so there are penalties, yeah, penalties to pay in downtime and expense, but all you have to do is really kind of follow our, our recommendations. And, uh, and again, uh, be sure to connect some, with someone from Cummins who is you know uh, knowledgeable about the technology and the product and help coach you through this process. We're all happy to do that and, um, and make sure that you're successful. But uh, if you do that, I think you will be successful. Hugh Donnell from uh, Cummins Westport, thanks for that. Uh, really great discussion. I appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts on that with us. My pleasure, Jim, and uh, thank you so much. HDT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to view the agenda and apply to be our guest at HDTX 2021. Some see renewable natural gas as just a bridge fuel, a step between the transition from diesel to electric. I don't know why it has to be viewed in that limited way. RNG isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. It doesn't even pretend to be, but I can think of dozens of applications where RNG just makes complete sense. You can check out the other alternative fuel episodes in Season 4. We have one on the future of the diesel engine and an update on Penske Truck Leasing's battery electric fuel tests now underway in Southern California. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss an episode, and please leave us a review or a comment while you're at it. HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.